Life is uncertain. It's okay to feel stressed, anxious, worried, or frustrated. CalHOPE can help. Access CalHOPE's free and secure mental health resources. Call 833-317-4673 or live chat at calhope.org. Dr. Travis Brown, what is this medical life all about? This is the pursuit of knowledge as we learn about diseases from the ancient times to the present day. These are the stories of medicine. Dr. Travis Brown, syndromes seem to be a common staple for this medical life. Tell us about Marfan syndrome. Marfan syndrome, it's a disorder that you come across. I don't know if you've come across it at all. It's, it's, it's one of those ones that sits in the back. I, I love my basketball, love my sport. Yes. And, <laughs> and Marfan syndrome is one of those diseases that sits in the background. And the reason it sits in the background is yes. because it's a disorder of connective tissue. It is actually a disorder, tends to be of athletes. Oh. Really tall athletes. Well, it's surprising I've never had it. <laughs> you are, you're looking very athletic over there, as I, I must say. But mm-hmm. can I take a left, left turn? I would expect nothing less. <laughs> Do you like ancient Egypt? Are you a fan of ancient Egypt history? I wouldn't want to go back there, but I do enjoy hearing about it. I marvel at their erections, you know, the, the, the pyramids and all those sorts of things. <laughs> that struck me. Just uh, you... <laughs> So there's an amazing story in ancient Egypt that has always captured my attention. And this is probably a, more a curiosity than, than anything else. And this is the story of Akhenaten. Right. He was a pharaoh. Now he was he was originally named Amenhotep IV. He was he was a pharaoh, but he's known to history as the heretic pharaoh. He reigned for seventeen years between the years of thirteen fifty and thirteen thirty four BCE. He married a, a beautiful, powerful woman by the name of Nefertiti. They had six daughters, and and like every royal in in history, as far as I can tell, always wanted a son to have an heir. So he married his sister, which was not uncommon at the time. Right. And they often had many wives. And his son is a relatively obscure pharaoh by the times, but one that we know to this day as Tutankhamun. Oh, wow. And just going back, so that, that puts it into context about where we're thinking. And Akhenaten, in his early reign, was the, had the typical rule. His, his reliefs and the images show him worshipping the traditional deities, doing everything you expect a pharaoh to do. But a few years into his reign, he becomes the catalyst for some of the most dramatic changes in ancient Egypt that there have ever been. And he changed it from a polytheistic society many gods, Mm -hmm. to a monotheistic society. He changed it such that they only worshipped the sun god, Aten, or the light from the sun. Mm -hmm. And so the significance of this, whilst I say that and we're like, oh, gee, that's interesting, the significance can't be overstated because this is a society that is pretty much based on gods. Yeah. And their rituals, their pleasing gods, you would give sacrifices, you would give your your tithes to the god to stay in favor. Imagine 
Every player wins a god. <laughs> well, imagine a pharaoh then turning around and saying the, the god of your worship is not a god anymore. It's not important. The priesthood who, who was in charge of everything. Who yes. it? So, Mind you, the priesthood training manual got really simple really quickly. <laughs> well, that's right. And not only that, temples that were to go oh. would have also been rebranded well yeah whatever it would have been so this would have shook and not only not only did he change he then started changing names and images and texts and monuments that these gods no longer mattered the traditional gods he changed his name as i say to Arknaten, which meant or is interpreted as effective for Arten, the sun god and he had new temples built now these new temples were radical because they didn't have a roof. Oh. Because you want to worship the sun god. Of course you do. Yes. <laughs> so they wouldn't have taken long to construct. And so you have open temples. And the other thing that he changed, which was really significant, was he changed the capital of Egypt. And so it went from the metropolis of Thebes to a previously unoccupied area in the desert, and he called it Amarna. And this was interpreted as place where Arten becomes effective. It took three years to build. Imagine that. Changing religion, changing the capital. And the final legacy that we have... Mind you, changing it from the den of thieves would have been a boost to tourism. <laughs> well, the, the, um, the, well, the final thing that he changed, yes. and, and, and this, was, this was significant, and we don't know much about it, was he changed their art. And... Again, when you come back to what name he was given, the history has given him as the heretic pharaoh, you can start to understand. And the changes he brought about eventually were changed back after his death. And so we actually don't know what he died of. We don't know where his tomb was buried. And some people think, oh, maybe he was, he's, we have his body today, but we don't know. And... The other thing that's interesting is almost every record and every reference and every monument dedicated to him was destroyed, almost everyone. But there are some images and statues that survived that are unlike any in the ancient world. And if you look at some of the remaining statues of Ark Martin, there's some really weird features about it. He has a long face, this prominent chin, slender Thin fingers and hands, prominent collarbones. Some of them show feminine features, and some of them show, which are pretty unflattering, things like pot belly and poor muscle tone of his statues. What about sunburn? <laughs> well, I can't really see that one. But in a world that idealizes masculinity and strength and power and servitude, where, where specimens are perfected and, and God based, you have these really weird statues that don't fit anywhere. And so was this an artistic flair that he said he wanted? Was this actually him? And that's where the question comes from. Well, if this was him, did he have a genetic disorder? Oh. Does he have, and one of the suggestions is, does he have Marfan syndrome? And so this is a disease of the connective tissue, as we were talking at the start. This is, this is a connective tissue disorder often associated with tall, thin people. And 
it is this disorder is of fibers that support and surround organs which is almost around everybody, but it particularly affects bones. And patients are tall, thin, they get long fingers, long arms, long toes, but it also affects things such as the heart and eyes and blood vessels, the most critical being the aorta, which is the largest artery and takes the full force of the heart with every pump, every beat. And so... That raised that question, well, could he have that? And we will not know the answer, and we don't have to be able to do any genetics tests because we don't have his body. But Marfan syndrome was first noted in 1896 by Anthony Bernard-Jean Marfan. Now, he was a French pediatrician. He described a five-year-old girl with these long arms, hands and feet, so these, you know, quote, spider legs. It, it was in 1931, then Henriculus Weaver gave it the name after him of Marfan syndrome. But what they described was these patients had long limbs that were able to have a dislocation of the ocular lens, their eye. And they had abnormal histology of the aorta wall. They would get this aortic regurgitation. And they would also have dissection of the ascending aorta, which is a fatal condition. And the average age of death at this time was about 32. It, right. had, it had a wide age range. And there wasn't any effective treatment for, this, uh, for the aorta until the 1970s when they were able to do surgical intervention to, to manage it. And the, the amazing thing about all of this, it wasn't until 1986 that the official diagnostic criteria was established. We, we now know that there's mutations in the gene fibrillin-1. And the, the important thing, why? It's because this is a serious disease and potentially life-threatening for those who have it. And there are examples of athletes who have died with it. And often, as I said, basketballers, there was a, a lady by the name of Ronelda Pierce, uh, in U.S. college basketball player who died of an aneurysm in 2004 from Marfan syndrome. There was a, a, a U.S. Olympic volleyball star. Uh, her name was Flo Hyman, and she was a silver medalist in 1984. At the age of 31, she was playing in 1986, and she got a ruptured aorta and died during a match. And there was a, a college basketball star, Isaiah Austin, who was seven foot one inch and diagnosed with Marfan syndrome just before the NBA draft and had to withdraw. So this is the, the reason why I bring it up. And it's just that association is there is a, an association. It's not always <laughs> uh, true, but there is an association. And, and these are some of the clues that hopefully we'll be able to discuss with our uh, upcoming guest. Professor Graham Southers is the National Director of Genetics for Sonic Pathology Australia. He trained in clinical and laboratory genetics in Sydney, Adelaide and Oxford and held senior appointments in the South Australian public sector. His current role involves the development of genetic services for patients and families across Sonic's clinical and laboratory services Australia-wide. 
Professor Graeme Southers is a regular guest on this Medical Life podcast. Welcome back, Graeme. Thank you very much. Graeme, can we start by asking you to, to tell us just how prevalent Marfan syndrome is? That might sound a simple question, uh, Steve, but it's like most simple questions. It actually gets quite difficult to, to sort that out. Um, and if I could actually divert, step sideways for a moment, just to briefly describe what Marfan syndrome is and how it fits into the, um, the scheme of, of medical care, if you will, and then we'll come back to, to the, the question of how frequent this is. Um, the body is made up of various organs, brain, heart, lungs, kidneys, etc. Um, and yes, there's a lot of healthcare around those and specialists in those areas and so on. But we need something to hold that all together. You actually need a frame, as it were, to hold those organs in place. And that frame is, is called connective tissue. It's made up of bones and uh, ligaments. Uh, there's lots of fibrous tissue scattered around the place. Um, there's a myriad of types of connective tissue, but they are indeed the frame that holds us together. And this in, um, the evaluation of, of that connective tissue is itself a specialty discipline. Now, all of these uh, connective tissues have essentially the same sort of structure. They're, they're like fiberglass. They've got fibers, protein fibers, that intermingle and create a meshwork. And then that mesh is embedded in a gel, as it were, that has varying degrees of stiffness and so on. And the, both the fibers and the gel is a, an enormous variety of fibers and of gels that can be put together, and that creates an enormous variety of connective tissue. Some is thin, bendy, but not stretchy. Other is thin, bendy and stretchy. Other is quite rigid like the bones and so on. So there are all these different types of uh, tissues produced by the combinations of fibers and gel. Now, there's going to be variation in how any particular protein is produced and incorporated into either the fibers or the gel, and indeed the other molecules that are involved in that mix. So that one person's connective tissue in one part of their body is likely to be slightly different to the same connective tissue in another person because of this normal human variation that we see. Mm. So if we look at them and make some measurement of how connective tissue works, its stretchability or whatever it might be, its strength, we'll find a range of values in the, in the population. And it's a continuous variation. The challenge is at what point do I say this connective tissue measurement is so far out of whack that we will now call it a disease, whether it be Marfan syndrome or whatever. And that's where the challenge comes in. Where do you set the boundary that says, Within this area, we're seeing normal variation, but we hop over the fence and, ah, we are now in, in medical disease uh, territory. And in the past, that has been um, much more challenging than it is now. We have some improvements that I'll come to in a moment. But it means then that when you say, how common is Marfan syndrome, where are you putting the boundary? Where do you put your cutoff to say, this now constitutes something that we call Marfan syndrome? I, I, I suppose, naively, I was hoping there was one objective <laughs> set of criteria that would be either in or out in a digital uh, binary way, but obviously not so. 
not say, Steve. Welcome, welcome to the complexity of biology. Um, it, 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 it has been a real challenge, and, and people have certainly uh, sought to develop um, guidelines, criteria to, to create that, that boundary fence, if you will. And that's um, very appropriate and indeed necessary for furthering our understanding of, of what is going on. But we must realize that it's a boundary that we have created to aid our understanding. It's not a boundary that is, in a sense, delivered to us. Mm -hmm. um, so there will be some people who are outside that boundary who perhaps turn out not to have a, a disorder, a disease, and there'll be some people inside the boundary who most clearly do. So we just need to recognize that these uh, clinical boundaries, they have great use. I'm not knocking them at all, but they are to an extent arbitrary. So the, um, that was the situation for, for many years in relation to Marfan syndrome. A lot of our understanding about this condition predates the genetic side of things and came from evaluation of people who fulfilled some particular uh, clinical criteria to make this diagnosis. And we need to identify people who had Marfan syndrome, a particular type of connective tissue disorder, from other types of connective tissue disorder which may be over a different fence. So there are things like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and so on. The, these were all characterized clinically before the genetics was understood. We are now in a situation where we know the genetic basis of Marfan syndrome. And using that information, we can now create a new definition for Marfan syndrome. And I am coming back to answer your question. <laughs> I, I appreciate this is a long way around, mm -hmm. but we, um, can use those uh, clinical criteria for uh, Marfan syndrome. And if a patient has at least one of these uh, and has an abnormality in the fibrillin 1 gene, that's the particular gene that causes Marfan syndrome, we call that Marfan syndrome. So it's a combination of the clinical feature and the genetic test result. And provided you have both clinical and uh, a genetic finding, then that is the current definition of Marfan syndrome. And on that basis, I can now tell you that between one in 5,000 and one in 10,000 people have Marfan syndrome. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> well, can, can I ask then, with, with that in mind, if, if someone is seeing a patient in front of them and Marfan just comes up as a, as a question, what are the classical presentations of someone who would have Marfan syndrome? So it's a good question, Travis, because the it, it is a common situation where someone presents with what you suspect might be a clinical, a connective tissue disorder. Um, and genetic testing is not cheap. It's not rebated by Medicare at the moment uh, for this condition. So we can't simply say, oh, we'll, we'll test everyone where we have, have a suspicion about this. So the, the clinical criteria are still very important. Now, I'm not going to try and provide the entire Marfan's uh, textbook uh, in this presentation or in this discussion. Um, there are um, clinical criteria called the GENT, G-H-E-N-T criteria, um, after the, uh, the, the European town where some people met oh, about 20 years ago now uh, to, to delineate the clinical criteria and what constitutes a clinical diagnosis of Marfan syndrome. Um, and practitioners can, can find those and check them out. It includes things like 
um, the person's height, Marfan syndrome, uh, people with Marfan syndrome uh, are typically uh, much taller than you would expect. They have relatively long arms and legs and fingers uh, compared with their trunk length, high arched palate. They uh, maybe have hyperextensible joints. The, um, the very strong pointers to Marfan syndrome as distinct from other connective tissue disorders are dilatation of the aortic root on ultrasound and dislocation of the, the lens of the eye. But I think the appropriate thing for a general practitioner would be to document what connective tissue abnormalities or attributes this particular patient has and then seek some specialist advice. Um, I would be wary of making a diagnosis of Marfan syndrome without having specialist input because there are very significant um, consequences in terms of risk to life for family, um, financial and so on that need to be addressed. And uh, I think it's important to get that specialist level assessment to make sure you, you really have a good handle on this. Um, there are, there's quite a lot of mimicry in, in this. And so not everyone who is tall or has long fingers or a high arched palate has Marfan syndrome. And so we do need to be very careful uh, about this, but get the, the raw data, clinical data, if you will, and seek expert advice. What's the clinical expert that you would actually send these patients to? <laughs> You're coming up with the hard questions today. <laughs> the, the connective tissue disorders um, are one of those conditions where they really embrace a number of disciplines. So it is partly rheumatological, um, it's partly orthopedic, it's partly cardiothoracic surgery around the aortic root, and often it's a clinical geneticist who is able to provide, to draw those elements together. So I think um, it will depend on the, the referral pathway that is available <clears throat> to, the, to the general practitioner. Um, it would be a matter of finding, say, a rheumatologist or a clinical geneticist who had a particular um, interest and availability uh, to assess that patient. Wow, there are more hard questions we have up our sleeve for you. We're just going to pause briefly and come back uh, in just a moment. Professor Graham's with us. Professor Graham Southers, welcome back. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with another question right now right into your sweet spot. What is the genetics behind this disorder we call Marfan syndrome? When we look at people who fulfill those uh, classical clinical criteria uh, for Marfan syndrome, about two thirds of them have a family history of relatives with, with the same clinical features. And on looking at those families, it became clear that Marfan syndrome as best defined clinically, is an autosomal dominant condition. So this is passed down from parent to child, where each child has a 50-50 chance of inheriting Marfan syndrome from mum or dad. Now, that's a, a crucial clinical observation because it highlights that Marfan syndrome is due to a single gene, an abnormality in a single gene that is being passed down through the generations. I mentioned uh, earlier that we have a, a plethora of genes that are involved in producing the proteins and the gel that make up connective tissue. And to be sure, there'll be other variations in those genes that will have some impact on the Marfan syndrome, but the humdinger for Marfan syndrome has to be a single gene 
with a mutation that is being passed down through the family. So with that uh, clue and working with uh, DNA samples from many families with Marfan syndrome and salute to those families that they contributed in this way, the gene that is responsible for Marfan syndrome was uh, identified some years ago. And it's called the fibrillin 1 gene. We'll come back to the number one in a moment there because it uh, carries, it highlights some of the complexities. So the fibrillin 1 gene, it's quite a long gene, it's on chromosome 15, and um, the, they've now identified a variety of mutations uh, in this gene that are responsible for Marfan syndrome. And so we now have um, a tight genetic handle on this condition. The testing, as I've mentioned, is not rebated by Medicare. So it is something that needs to be paid for either by the patient or by the healthcare service. Um, whether that will change uh, remains to be seen. But uh, at the moment, this has to be a uh, someone else is, other than government mm. is needing to pay for this test. Now, having found the, uh, the mutations in these genes, it became clear that we've got a couple of problems, as it were. One is that there were members of the family who had inherited the abnormal uh, mutation, the abnormal gene, but had not developed the classic textbook features of Marfan syndrome. They might have some of the features, but not all of them. And part of the challenge here is that, particularly for younger members of the family, those classical features of Marfan syndrome will develop over time. So dilatation of the aortic root or dislocation of the uh, ocular lens is not something you're born with. It's something that happens over time in response to, to the stresses of, of being alive and so on. So you might have a younger person in the family who has the mutation but doesn't have the clinical features of Marfan syndrome. And occasionally you would come across someone who has the clinical features of Marfan syndrome in this family but doesn't have a mutation. And what we're probably looking in that situation is someone who has um, a particular cluster of variations in other genes other than fibrillin 1, and we it's, it's mimicking Marfan syndrome. That possibility of someone who's in the family with a mutation, doesn't have the mutation and has Marfan syndrome. Uh, people have looked at those instances very carefully. And I must say on, on closer examination, that seems to be less of a problem or less of a consideration now than it was. Mm -hmm. And it's for this reason that the, um, the, the, the experts, international experts have come together and said, we're going to define Marfan syndrome, both on the basis of the abnormal gene being identified in a person, and they need to have either significant aortic root dilatation or dislocation of the ocular lens. And provided we have both the genetic and one of those two cardinal um, clinical features, we can make that diagnosis of Marfan syndrome. So then looking at this, this is a fibrillin one, you mentioned being uh, the, the one being significant. Why is that? I mentioned that fibrillin 1 is the, is the gene that is responsible for Marfan syndrome. And it begs the question of the astute listener, well, what about fibrillin 2? Yes. And there is a fibrillin 2. It is a gene that is uh, very similar to fibrillin 1, and it causes a, um, a condition which is characterized by um, a tall stature and a variety of other connective tissue abnormalities. So you can see some, some mimicry there. But it's also associated with contractures in the joints, rather, uh, which is something that we don't see in Marfan syndrome. So people who have a mutation in fibrillin 2 
are now recognised as having uh, Beals syndrome or uh, congenital contractual arachnodactyly. You can see why people prefer I, Beals I syndrome. avoided that word in the first <laughs> act. <laughs> and, and this is a discrete, it's a, it's a separate condition. Um, and so we've now got some clarity. Uh, and so some of those people that in the past were thought to have Marfan syndrome but didn't have a mutation turn out to have uh, Beals syndrome. Mm. So now with, with the reading that I was going through about Marfan syndrome, one gene is affected, but it's more than one mutation. Is that right? There are a number of mutations in the fibrillin 1 gene that can cause Marfan syndrome. So as is the case with most genetic disorders, there is a, a particular gene that is involved, but there's a wide variety of problems within that gene that can cause the condition. And there is uh, some growing evidence about the particular type of mutation within the fibrillin 1 gene is associated with a certain range or severity of uh, clinical problems um, in, the, in the, the clinical features of Marfan syndrome. Um, intriguingly, if you have a mutation that means that no fibrillin 1 protein or no proteins produced from the fibrillin 1 gene, that's a bit milder than if you have a mutation which causes an abnormal protein to be formed. And the reason for that is possibly that the abnormal protein is, is essentially got a kink or something equivalent to that within the matrix, within the gel, and that that disturbs the other normal fibrillin 1 proteins that have been produced from the other gene, from the second copy that we all have. So that's one, one possibility. But there is another intriguing dimension to Marfan syndrome, which has become apparent in the last five to 10 years, and is beginning to provide some interesting clues about potential therapy. I described this, uh, called the, the fibrillin and Marfan syndrome in terms of connective tissue and providing a framework. But human biology is complex, and one particular protein will often have multiple functions. And the fibrillin protein is not only a structural protein, it also binds and releases growth factors and other um, signaling proteins within the connective tissue. So it's acting really as a way station, as a controller of some of the signaling that happens within connective tissue to make sure the connective tissue works and responds as it should. And so some of these mutations in, in fibrillin 1 um, will interfere to a greater extent potentially with the, the signaling function of fibrillin rather than the structural function. Now there's going to be a both end, but what the interplay is between the two, um, there are experts who will know about that, but that's now well outside my area of expertise. And what specimen is required for testing? If a person is going to um, have testing of the, the fibrillin 1 gene, um, remember, we're looking here for a mutation that has been inherited, that has started from the moment of that person's conception. So strictly speaking, we could analyze any tissue you like. In Steve's case, we could even do a brain biopsy. There you to go. See, <laughs> to see where, whether he had inherited an abnormal fibrillin gene. Or a brain. Um, or a brain. Um, in practice, of course, it's much simpler to do it on a blood sample. And uh, the techniques that we have now mean that we can get very good quality DNA from a, a DNA sample. So although the blood sample is not strictly speaking a form of connective tissue, the genetic content of the white blood cells is the same as the genetic content of the cells that form the connective tissue. Mm. 
just a just a quick question: Is there such a thing as de novo Marfan? Like we yep. talk about uh, inherited, we tested it. Could someone develop it that doesn't have the family history? Now you'll remember I said that when you look at people who have the clinical features, the classical clinical features of Marfan syndrome, about two thirds of them have a family history. And we now need to circle back briefly to ask, well, what about the one third that don't? And it transpires that these are people who uh, indeed have Marfan syndrome and have a mutation in the fibrillin one gene, but it's not present in either of their parents. And what's happened here is that this mutation has occurred during the formation of the egg or sperm, typically the sperm, from which that person uh, developed and grew. So the mutation is indeed present from conception, but it was delivered by a sperm with a, an abnormal gene rather than being inherited from dad or mum. There you go. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. Genetics always messes with me. Uh, can I ask then, how long does the actual test take for, for a result? The fibrillin 1 gene is, is quite a long gene and, and it's quite a complex gene. So it's not a trivial undertaking to analyse it. That said, with the rapid advances in genetic technology, it is getting uh, faster and easier to do these analyses. Um, this typically means that it's actually cheaper and quicker to analyze not just the fibrillin 1 gene, but to analyze a panel of genes, all of which are implement, uh, implicated in various connective tissue disorders. So there are a number of laboratories um, in Australia and around the world who, who can provide this. Now, the, the turnaround time, the, the time it takes to actually get a result, will vary widely. It may be a matter of a few weeks. It could be a few months. And that's something that would need to be brokered with the, the individual laboratory providing that test. This is a test that is uh, not available through uh, sonic genetics at this stage, although we appreciate the, the clinical significance of the test um, and would be pleased to explore that um, if there was a, uh, some form of rebate to, to make this more readily accessible to, to Australian patients. Just finally, Graham, earlier you said the, the prevalence, at, at the end of the explanation, the prevalence is around 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 10,000. And I had a quick look. There's 8,500 people in my suburb. Now, let's imagine most suburbs are around that mark. That's about a person per suburb who could be a candidate for Marfan syndrome. And with that noted... What are the important aspects for GPs to know about Marfan syndrome, given that sort of volume of likely candidates? Now, Steve, you, you correctly say that there'd be about one person per suburb, if you've got an average suburb, yes. um, who would have Marfan syndrome. However, we need to remember that Marfan syndrome is only one of the connective tissue disorders. And there are a variety of other connective tissue disorders that can cause uh, people to be taller than usual, have longer limbs than usual, have a high arched palate and so on. And for many of these people, the, the fact that they have these clinical features is of no clinical consequence. They make great basketball players or whatever it might be, you don't need to know uh, or be fussed about anything else. And it would be a great shame to put it mildly if people who had some particular natural advantage in height were given uh, an incorrect label that they had a, a disease or a disorder. True. So I think it's important that the GP be mindful that connective tissue disorders can present in the way of, uh, the, the, with the features that I've mentioned of tall stature, long limbs, etc. But to recognise that um, not everyone who has those characteristics will have Marfan syndrome. 
And this distinction is really important because the, the life-threatening element of Marfan syndrome is the aortic root dilatation. And in the absence of um, medical or surgical care, and I'm happy to discuss that in a moment if you wish, but in the absence of those uh, innovations, um, a, a rupture or uh, yes, a rupture of the aortic root was uh, the major cause of death in people with Marfan syndrome. And the average lifespan was only measured in three or four decades. So if you do have a diagnosis of definite Marfan syndrome, it becomes very important for those people to be um, assessed and followed up very carefully regarding their cardiovascular health. Yet if you can exclude a diagnosis of Marfan syndrome, then they may have some other medical issues to uh, contend with. They may have some sore joints or joints that uh, where they easily dislocate a, a kneecap or something along those lines. And I'm not wanting to trivialize that, but they're not facing the life-threatening crisis of acute aortic root dilatation. So this is where it's important for the GP to um, be alert to the possibility that a patient has a connective tissue disorder and to refer on for specialist assessment anyone who falls into that possibility range. Now, the reality is that, that most of those people who are referred will come back to the GP with that diagnosis of Marfan refuted, and that's okay. The, you know, the appropriate, the needful has been done. We're looking for um, only one of the causes of a connective tissue disorder and one that carries particular implications. The reason that the aortic root and the ocular lens are the hallmarks for this condition is that they are the two sites where fibrillin is highly, fibrillin one is highly expressed. So they are very dependent on fibrillin's properties to hold the lens in place and to, to keep the aortic root um, the diameter that it should be. So in the past, if you had um, aortic root dilatation to the point where there was a risk of uh, rupture, then surgery was, was all that was really available. And it's pretty major surgery, um, but people would go in and sew a synthetic um, mesh around the aorta to provide it with some extra support and so on. But then it was realized that you could potentially delay the need for that sort of surgery by reducing the, the pressure and the demands on the aortic wall. So people began to recommend uh, avoiding strenuous exercise and introduce beta blockers. Okay. And uh, by slowing down the, the heart rate, reducing the, the swings in, in blood pressure that occur with exercise and stress and so on, they were able to uh, dramatically slow the progression of that aortic root dilatation. So that's the current approach uh, is to um, make lifestyle modifications, beta blockers and consider surgery if necessary. But with recognition now of the signaling function of fibrillin 1 and that it binds TGFR to waffle, 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 there are some novel therapies that are in development, and I don't know the details of those. But I'm just flagging that we've moved away from, um, in the, the bad old days, of just waiting till disaster struck mm. and have come forward to try and repair the, the damage that has occurred to trying to prevent the damage by, um, in a sense, constraining what a person does. That's what the beta blockers are doing. And we're now at the point of potentially looking at molecular therapy to improve the function of fibrillin, of this mutant fibrillin within the aortic wall. Mm. Wow. Well, what a fascinating discussion. Professor Graham Suthers, thank you as always for joining This Medical Life. It's been a pleasure. 
We'll leave you to your duties in Sydney. Meanwhile, before Travis leaves our studio, I'm going to use my non-Marfan syndrome height advantage to shoot some hoops out the front before you disappear. You up for that? Sounds good. (laughs) Thank you very much. This Medical Life is recorded in the Talked About Marketing Studios in Adelaide. For show notes and more information about the podcast, visit thismedicallife.com.au. You can contact the hosts via Twitter. Dr. Travis Brown is at Dr. Travis Brown. That's DR for doctor. And Steve Davis is at Steve Davis. Editing and production is by Tim Whiffen. Design is by Tom Buzzenjut. This has been a Pathnotes Proprietary Limited production. Life is uncertain. It's okay to feel stressed, anxious, worried, or frustrated. CalHOPE can help. Access CalHOPE's free and secure mental health resources. Call 833-317-4673 or live chat at calhope.org.